When a pro wrestler goes before the court, the court becomes pro wrestling. It's the trial of the British Bulldog. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You open the app, you press the button, you put the earbuds in your ear, or maybe you're that guy at the office, the weirdo who just plays things out loud and everybody tries to pretend they don't hear it. Who am I to judge, but who am I? I am Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a booker, occasionally a ring announcer, but all the time, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And today I am here with the 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 Optimus Prime to my Rodimus Prime. Maybe we've done that one before. I didn't listen. I didn't do my research. But hey, guess what? It's Chongo Bronson. The, the matrix of leadership has been passed down. Hello, darlings. Ab Fab, welcome to the show today. Join us on our adventure across the pond. This is going to be a capital episode of being. Because we're going to be jumping kind of to not quite modern times, but close enough to modern times. We're taking a break from the old timey tales to tell a story that I found fascinating and I had to share with everyone. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Because there are people who run their mouths and can never back it up when shit gets wild. And there are people who can absolutely handle their business in a fight, but never mouth off because they don't want to be in that situation. And yes, somewhere in that middle, you find people like us. Yes, we mouth off and we can back it up, unless we mouth off to someone that we shouldn't be. But usually we have good intentions, except sometimes. Mistakes happen, mistakes are made, and that can really, really be the theme of this show because we are going to be talking about the trial of the British Bulldog. Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, he was born in uh, Gabbard, Lancashire, Lancashire, a place we are talking about a lot these days, and trained by Ted Bentley before coming to Canada and continuing his training under Stu Hart. There is no way either one of those would fail to produce a legitimate tough guy, let alone both. Lancashire Pro Wrestling, even in its most show form, is still a rough and tumble place to learn rough and tumble techniques. And there are few places more notorious, few places more famous for producing legitimate grappling stars in pro wrestling than the Heart Dungeon. Yeah, the Heart Dungeon is, is you know, one of the most iconic sort of breeding grounds for not just pro wrestling, but also for shooters and hookers and submission grappling as an art form. And the the cross-pollination of styles that blended there over the years, you know, everyone from Piper to, you know, there, there's so many, so many grapplers have trained at, at, with the Hart family at the, at the dungeon. And it's no surprise that uh, you're going to come out of there just, uh, you know, a premier grappler for that era. But before taking the trip to Canada, he debuted at the age of 15. You heard me, 15 on World of Sport and often tagged with his cousin and notorious maniac Tom Billington, aka the Dynamite Kid. There is a guy who will we'll have a whole episode or two about him because that guy was an absolute lunatic as well as being a fantastic wrestler. But that is a story for then. Right now, we are focusing on Davy Boy Smith. 
Both in tag action and then as a breakout single star, Smith was an amazing in-ring technical wrestler. Though he worked for damn near every major company on earth at the time, most American wrestling fans will remember him for his multiple runs at the WWF, tagging with Owen, the European Championship, the Hart Foundation, but the man though much more clean-cut than his former tag partner, had his share of demons and problems. Aside from several incidents involving drugs, which was about par for course for everyone in the business in those days, he found himself in a legal predicament that nearly put his life on hold from 1993 to 1996, and that is the story we're going to be focusing on today. Were you a fan of this man growing up? Oh, Bulldog was my guy, dude. He was my number two babyface in my living room booking federation that I had when I had my wrestling ring when I was eight with the little single move where he did the bench press. The bite of the Bulldog. Dude, he was so good. I remember the tail end of the British Bulldogs. I believe WrestleMania 2, maybe WrestleMania 3, right around that time when I was really young just getting into pro wrestling. But, man, what I really remember is those early 90s Royal Rumbles where he was, I think it was a couple years in a row where he was one of the first guys in the ring with Shawn Michaels and they would carry that thing. I know the year that Flair won it when he was in there number three. Those guys, I believe, were the final two guys in the ring with him. And then the following year when Michaels won it and they went bell to bell and were one and two from the beginning to the end. I just remember he was, he looked as you know, Herculean, and he looked as, you know, action figure-like as the ultimate warrior, but he had this different level of believability, but he was still cool, like he had the cape, and dude, he was so badass, man, he had the braids, bro, there's Bulldog was my guy. And he's somebody I really appreciate more today than I did when I was a kid, because now I watch him from the perspective of somebody who understands not just wrestling as show business, but understands, you know, from a jujitsu submission wrestling shoot fighting background where I watch his stuff. And yes, he does have that entertaining world of sports style, but you can tell this is a man who knows how to put a hold on and keep you right where he wants you, whether you like it or not. Oh yeah, especially if you check out some of the more obscure stuff, because you're with with most people, you're never gonna see their 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 highest display of technical brilliance in their most mainstream stuff that people know about. But you go back and you look at like the British Bulldogs versus the Malenko brothers in, it might've been either New Japan or All Japan, late eighties, maybe 90. Dude, he was brilliant. And the, the, the crisp and technical proficiency of, yeah, his jujitsu, his judo, dude, he was a bad motherfucker. He was a product of Lancashire in every way possible. But things did not go well for him on July 25th, 1993 in Calgary. Smith and his wife Diana had attended Southern Alberta's annual Rocky Ford Rodeo and afterwards went out with friends. They went to a somewhat notorious rock and roll spot called the Back Alley Bar and every description I've heard of this place makes me think of the movie Roadhouse. Yes, except Canada. First of all, how I want to just start right here. This is the first hole I want to punch in this thing. Davy Boy Smith is in Calgary. How is it? How is he even pretend like he should be so beloved as a as a extended member of the Hart family? How is anyone giving this guy any issues? And granted, I may 
you know, eat this statement in a second, but I can't believe that anyone would have the audacity to cause any trouble with the British Bulldog in Calgary. And a funny thing I just thought of mentioning the movie Roadhouse, we've both bounced, we've both worked doors for venues, for bars, for shacks, for crab shacks. How many absolute idiots do you think tried to get into uh, bouncing, working at the door, getting those type of jobs because they saw the movie Roadhouse one too many times and then got fired three days later for spin kicking some you know teen for being mildly disrespectful. I know two of them at least. <laughs> I'm looking at one of them. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's definitely how I got into the old biz. So we've set our scene. We're at a you know bit, a bit of a bit of a honky tonk type of place. Everyone was having fun, relaxing with a few beers and dancing. Pause the scene, and now we introduce 19-year-old Cody Light, a student from the nearby Devry Institute. He was drunk, having been there since they opened hours before, drinking as only a 19-year-old can, and had been warned by the bouncers for harassing women. But did any of that take root in his booze-soaked brain? Of course not. Yes, and it is just uh, important to note that in Canada at this time, the legal drinking age was 19. I know this because I grew up in Seattle and we used to go across the border and I would take my older brother's ID when I was 17. So ha ha ha, Canada. Davy Boy's wife, Diane Smith, had been dancing with her friend's teen son when old Cody Light, that silly goose, grabbed her vest and allegedly asked, when a beautiful chick like you and a geek like that are screwing, who's on top? And for any young men listening to the show for dating tips, which I don't know why you would be doing that, don't do the thing that guy just did. Yes, pro tip. Don't hit on the scary motherfucker's wife with some inappropriate shit that'll get you slapped. Well, he didn't know who she was. She was just dancing with her friend's teenage son. He comes over and decides to be a creep of the first order, but... Yeah, don't do that. Diana was, you know, she was disgusted by this little creep, but she also grew up in the Hart household with eight brothers, so she knew the best way to handle a dumb shit like this was to ignore him. She didn't take the, you know. That was not what I was expecting you to say. I thought she was about to cripple cross face, motherfucker. Nope, she just ignored him, and he didn't take the hint and allegedly thrust his hips at her from behind in a suggestive and lewd fashion. Don't say. So she went for the ankle pick, stepped over, tried to secure the sharpshooter. Uh, no, unfortunately not. Damn she it. was just trying to be as civil as possible. And, you know, Davy Boy, he had no idea that this had occurred when he walked out on the dance floor at 1.20 a.m. to find his wife so they could finally head home. Cody Light, bright as his namesake, interrupted them and said, Hey, I'm talking to the lady. That's my wife, Smith said. You got a nice fucking wife, Light replied. And let's kind of look at this. You know, Davy Boy Smith was only 5'11", but he checked in around 260 pounds, and he was not a, uh, a soft fella. Cody Light, who he was like 6'3", according to what I read, not a big man aside from being tall, he felt the need to challenge Smith in a weird way. He shook his hand, refusing to let go, and trying to squeeze his hand like a real asshole, like trying to do some sort of little middle school domination move. See, if there was ever a time where a roundhouse kick to an unruly teenager in a bar was appropriate, now is when you bust out the roadhouse, bro. But here's the thing. Smith didn't want to beat up some drunken, dumb kid. He didn't want to, you know, make the news. He didn't want to deal with that bullshit. He's a guy who 
clearly didn't feel like he had a lot to prove, you know, as far as like, you know, feeling insecure in the face of a drunken teenager. So he just kind of got his hand out of the other guy's hand and said they were leaving. And this is when Cody Light made the mistake of his life. He lunged at Smith and tried to headbutt him. Yes, you've clearly never watched any any of the British Bulldogs matches because you must not know their go-to top rope maneuver. Um, that is not a head you want to try to crack with your head, bro. Yeah, so he tried to like sucker headbutt him, and Smith ducked it, grabbed him, bent him over, and put him in a front face lock. Uh, describe what a front face lock is and why this is a great position to put somebody in where you just want to subdue them. Well, it's a very instinctual position. Um, it's you could also call it a standing guillotine, but basically the person is facing you in front of you and you have them bent forward slightly. So you have basically your bicep on the back of their neck and your wrist is essentially under their Adam's apple and you've got them in a front headlock standing in front of you. You can They can't really strike you there. You can apply a lot of submission and choke pressure there. You can actually use that to a pretty fatal end if you chose to, you know, as far as the damage you can inflict on the spinal column. And you can, you know, successfully take somebody. It's a pretty effective place to get somebody, especially when you're that strong like Dave Boy Smith, because once he's got you there, bro, you're not getting out. Because this is a move, if you've ever seen a standing guillotine for the UFC fans out there, that's what this is, except he's not cranking the choke. He's just holding the guy in place. And this is a taller person at 6'3". You have them bent over. You've taken away all their leverage, all their ability to uh, you know, use their core strength. Every tool they have is now gone unless they're a trained fighter. They're not in a position to fight back. They're not in a position to grab you. They're not in a position to throw punches. It is a great kind of like security bouncer move when you're just like, okay, little fella, it's time for you to go home and I don't want to leave a mark on you. So he held them in that uh, spot, not wanting to do any damage in case, you know, somebody wants to talk to the cops or a lawyer. And Smith walked Cody Light to the door and told the bouncer, what had occurred. He let him go, assuming the door team would have it from there. He got his wife, and when he came back, Cody Light was on the floor, unconscious, with broken glass sticking out of his head. Due to being drunk, when Cody was released, he popped his head up, got lightheaded, took a step, slipped on the boo-slick floor, fell and hit the back of his head on the concrete entranceway. Davy Smith tried to wait there until the ambulance arrived, which, you know, was the polite thing to do. But Cody's drunk friends were talking shit and challenging him to a fight in the parking lot. So he took the door team's advice and he did the right thing at that point and he took off. Well, um, if ever there was a justification for the jury giving the verdict of uh, visitation by God <laughs> or balance of the universe or karma juice or whatever you want to call it. That's it because that's about the, you know, the, the karmic result of the asshattery of what that guy deserved. Maybe that's a little bit stiff, but man, what a dick. Yeah, but it's a situation, everybody listening has probably at some point like gotten off the couch too fast totally. and you get that like, woo, head rush. But then you combine that with being drunk an idiot and being like an aggressive, like adrenalized, you're trying to start some shit mood. And then you add that this floor is slick with booze and you know empty bottles. It's a recipe for disaster. 
kind of hard to assign blame on this situation. So Smith just left. He went home, he went about his business, and then he went back to work. He was, at that time, he was with WCW, and he was in a bit of a contract dispute, as Eric Bischoff had a completely different idea about Smith's value to the company than the now-departed Bill Watts had. Because wrestling at this point was still down across the country as the industry dipped hard before the Monday Night Wars launched and turned into the Attitude Era and made it as hot as ever and made it as hot as it ever was. Smith and Bischoff fought because Smith was being paid the same for U.S. dates as he was for the more taxing European tours, which he often anchored as the biggest name they could provide on those tours. He threatened to no-show TV tapings if the situation was not fixed in his favor financially, and when a proper deal wasn't struck, he didn't show up. In many cases like this, it still could have reached a healthy resolution, but new company president Bob Dew became involved, and since he saw WCW as hemorrhaging money, he refused to give Bischoff any wiggle room to pay Smith what he asked for, and after the TV no-show, he was quickly demoted to no job. Yeah, that sucks, and it's a, a perfect microcosmic illustration of what happens when you get, like, corporate... TV type people making pro wrestling decisions because on the merit of his grievance is valid. Most guys, if you're you know if you're on a, a tour and you're going to where you are the biggest draw, you're going to your hometown or your home territory. It is reasonable to figure that guy in. I mean, there was a reason the Intercontinental match went on last at Wembley. Davy Boy is the hometown boy over there, and that is a valid ask. Like what? What went on in what you just described was not unreasonable based on the normal merit of pro wrestling, you know, deservance of pay. And that Wibbly match, uh, I forget which WWE video game it was there where the storyline was the Attitude Era, but that was essentially the kickoff match in it, and I played it constantly. And if you ever want to see a perfect breakdown of all the corporate interference mistakes that can happen with wrestling on television. Read the book, The Death of WCW. It documents it absolutely yeah. perfectly. And he was now, you know, gone from WCW. He would bounce around a little bit before coming back to WWF. But it wasn't until four months later that the Cody Light incident came giggle too light again. That's <laughs> probably because he did. He woke up. <laughs> uh, you're not too far off. On Christmas Day, uh, they found out that the police in Calgary were looking for Davy Smith and had a warrant for his arrest. Smith returned immediately, certain that he did nothing wrong and had nothing to fear, and was immediately arrested for aggravated assault. His father-in-law, Stu Hart, had to pay to bail him out of jail, which I'm sure was not humiliating at all. Yeah, how 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 does that call go? <laughs> Can you imagine making the collect the collect call to the to the heart dungeon house? You have a collect call from Calgary inmate. That'd be hilarious. For you see, Light was pressing charges and suing for $1.3 million over the injuries he received. He suffered a fractured skull, loss of hearing in one ear, imp impaired motor and speech skills, and was in the hospital for six weeks in a coma, most of it. But remember that Canada has socialized health care, so that didn't cost too much, if anything. 
According to Light, the British Bulldog attacked him for dancing with his wife, choked and punched him, and smashed him into the wall. This is what resulted in him falling and hitting his head, Light claimed. Attorney Gary Balecki represented Light. He was loud, aggressive, and already hated pro wrestling. If we were given the opportunity to draw a perfect heel in this uh, courtroom drama, it would be this guy to a T as he existed in real life. Balecki was representing Light. He claimed that the highly trained athlete had given Cody Light a pile driver onto the dance floor, thus nearly killing him and ruining his life. The plan was obvious. Paint Smith is a trained fighter who is a danger to anyone who he decided to pick a fight with for no reason whatsoever. As J. Jonah Jameson would say of Spider-Man, he's a menace! So, like, is there no, like, witnesses in Canada or, like, videotape? Because, first of all, like... Didn't he go, didn't his head go through like a window or something? Like, you don't pile drive sideways. I don't, does this guy know wrestling moves? And I, I will give this, I will give this guy credit. He was smart enough to understand that he could, he could attempt to flex kayfabe and basically accuse him of felonious shit, right? Yeah, it's really easy, even though there's a lot at stake at human suffering and various, uh, you know, things that are just not good to exist in the world. But you almost have to admire a guy who hates pro wrestling to try to turn a courtroom uh, drama into pro wrestling. But one of the biggest cruxes we will examine in this, and that became a big part of this, is the fact that he said he gave him a shoot pile driver, which is fucking impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's a... Yes, <laughs> that's amazing for so many reasons. Because first of all, nerd, that's not the setup position. You don't do it from a standing guillotine. That would be a suplex or a DDT. God, who taught you how to work? And if anybody was going to try to, I can't even imagine the Herculaneum strength it would take to give a resisting person a pile driver, a shoot pile driver. It's it's a cooperative move, as we'll discuss down the road. But we'll just say this: he already planted the seeds for his own defeat by making up this crazy, crazy story without doing his research. And since it was pretty much impossible, Balecki had a hard time producing witnesses or evidence of any kind. He initially had the former medical chief examiner of Alberta lined up as an expert witness, but he dropped out as soon as he found out what. Balecki Lecky's crooked intentions were. He simply made a statement that a pile driver would not cause those injuries, but slipping and falling backwards onto the floor would have done the trick. Because falling back and hitting your head is like one of the worst things you can do. It's 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 like just an, an automatic internal brain explosion. And even in you know, that's when most of the time when you hear about somebody dying in a street fight, it's not them getting punched out, it's them hitting their head when they fall to the sidewalk. You even exactly. see sometimes in in pro-trained fights, sometimes a person will uh, you know, be hurt even worse because they got KO'd, they couldn't tuck their chin, they fall down, they land on the back of their fucking head, impacts the neck, impacts the spine, impacts the brain, way worse than just getting punched does. So this is a bad thing to happen to anyone, let alone some drunken dipshit. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. Forensically, the, the injuries don't match up to the move. I wonder if he just was kind of just sort of naming a felonious, just kind of, this is a, a you know, a dangerous sounding pro wrestling move, and he didn't really have the name correlated to the actual maneuver that he, because I feel like if you were going to actually accuse someone of doing a pro wrestling move to inflict these injuries, you would like 
make it the most probable and believable move that would result in these injuries and be doable against somebody not trying to work with you, right? You would think, but I don't think thought really went into this. I feel like they were going for a spectacle, not practical. Again, legal drama as pro wrestling. You go for the top shelf sounding name, a pile driver. Yeah, yeah. You know, totally. it sounds it sounds so brutal. It yeah. sounds like something, you know, you never want to, to see happen to your poor little baby boy or the kid in your community. It sounds like just just pure hell that this big brute of a man did to this poor little little fella. I would have loved it if someone had been like, we, we have an expert demonstration of what a pile driver is and like do a boss root and bar scene fight <laughs> recreation of it to like see if he could do that damage to the guy. Like on uh, uh, those ballistic shows, that would be awesome. And with everything looking like a mess on his end, Balecki convinced the court to delay the trial from June 12, 1995 to January 1996. Uh, Lane Hepner, uh, Smith's attorney, wasn't terribly happy about that. And I can assume neither was Davy Boy's bank account because shit like this is expensive. Yeah, what the hecky, Balecki? And it was... That the third Hepner brother? Uh, no, like <laughs> I, it's Hep, it's Hepner with a P. So it's uh, uh, it's, un, it's, a, it's, a, yes, it's, a, it's yes, unrelated. Yes. And yeah, you know, anytime you have to deal with anything Ugh. involving the law, it is crazy expensive. Like all the way down to like the smallest misdemeanor to the 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 top shelf like quadruple homicide. You know, going on. You know, trial goes on for a month to look at all the evidence. I'm not saying that uh, the courts are a war on poor people, but it sure as shit feels that way. Um, I had a situation many years ago where I got caught up in a bar fight. Uh, when the cops got there, they assumed for some reason I was the bad guy, even though my nose was clearly broken and hanging off my face. Cop tackled me from behind. I threw him and uh, knocked the wind out of him. Uh, so believe it or not, I, I spent a little bit of, uh, I spent that weekend locked up until kind of charges came apart. At the end of the road, I was just charged with misdemeanor third degree assault. At the end of the road, like that's my, you know, like it's a, it's a misdemeanor. It's the lowest assault you can have because I got caught in a bar fight and I made the mistake of throwing the cop to try to tackle me from behind. At the end of the road, that cost me about $10,000. Yeah, and that was not someone trying to sue a person they perceived to have money and trying to drag it out as a as a shady scumbag, you know, ambulance chasing attorney like this jabroni. Yeah, this the, like my thing didn't see the inside. We didn't go to a trial. It was all done yeah, on the other side. But yeah, it was st like still just like it's, st yeah. it's still a, an enormous amount of money. And also when you have that weighing on you for months, like this, my thing took a few months. His thing took year, like like almost three years to resolve. So you have that stress, you have that worry, you have that financial drain. Meanwhile, you're also just trying to live your life, which becomes very, very difficult. Whether you're going to, uh, you know, work at the, uh, you know, you know, digging ditches off at the, uh, the, the side of the road, or if you're on television, that's something you do not need hanging over you from a psychological perspective. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had to go to another state for a court appearance, but we're talking about him having to go to a different country. Granted, it's just Canada, but I mean, that's, you know, this is a hassle and a half. And then knowing that you're just getting basically an attempt of somebody trying to jack your money and use the situation to screw you over, man. I, I would have given this uh, the lawyer a pile driver, dude. 
And by the time the trial came underway, Balecki had convinced, I mean, found three men to testify that Light was indeed given the pile driver at the end of a beating, claiming Smith started the fight by punching Light and hurling him headfirst into a brick wall, which sounds like something that would happen in a cartoon. I assume his head stuck through the wall, and then on the other side, his feet were kicking, and then the other side, his head stuck into the bathroom, like uh, something out of like a, like, a, like a weird 80s sex comedy, and the women in the shower scream and run, run in every direction. My brain is a weird place. You just looked in it. I'm sorry. Yes, but that's probably pretty accurate about what he's describing, you know? And he didn't get free until Davey tried to punch his head off and punched an additional hole in the wall that, you know, he pulled, he pulled a Kyle and he and, got his head out. And none of them could really get on the same page when describing the match finish. I mean, the pile driver that crippled Cody Light at the end of this fight. Smith's witnesses, however, were consistent and backed up Smith's story of a face lock walk to the bouncers, followed by a slip and fall. The club bouncers said the same thing when they were on the stand. Everybody who wasn't these three randos who couldn't tell the st a straight story were just like, yeah, this guy was being an asshole. He put him in a front, lock, uh, front face lock, walked him to the door, and then it was a bit of a whoopsie doodle with a bad, with a bad ending. Balecki attacked Smith as a violent bully, a brute who manhandled his opponents in the ring on a nightly basis, assuming that the bulldog would never, ever break the sacred vow of kayfabe and expose the business, even to save himself on trial, much like a made man in the mafia, keeping the code of Amerta to the grave. Shit! <laughs> and clearly that wasn't the case. You got me fucked up. I'm, not, I'm singing, and then if you try to take any of my money, then I'm going to really beat your ass. Smith said, every single thing in wrestling is fake. He said that under oath. Believe it or not, there weren't gasps of shock, and nobody fainted. As we've discussed time and time again, wrestling had been a known work off and on since the mid-1800s, and Vince McMahon had even made that claim in 1992 during a conflict with the Florida Athletic Commission that was dead set on regulating wrestling as a real sport. The move by the Athletic Commission was primarily to investigate drug use, which was a big media uh, spot at that point, and to force WWF and WCW to issue refunds over talent no-showing events. So if you bought tickets to see Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan didn't show up, you had a reason to ask for a refund. Obviously, the wrestling companies did not want that, but also they wanted the 140K a year from each company, which is easy, easily enough money to fight over. The WWF explained how they're no different from the Harlem Globetrotters, just entertainment. And lesser known is that McMahon made the same statement in New Jersey for the same reason three years earlier. And Balecki, too, clearly didn't do his research and fully expected Smith to protect the business until the end. So he changed tactics and started calling Smith a phony, a fraud. Smith coolly replied, well, if you want to put it that way, refusing to get suckered into a shouting match in the courtroom. Yeah, he's lucky that they didn't pull the, the British Bulldogs okie doke that they did with the fabulous Rousseau's and have, have a... Uh, uh, have dynamite waiting waiting outside of catering with with the roll of nickels. You know what I'm saying? That's for another episode. Chongo digresses. So yeah, there was this was a time when wrestling had been publicly exposed in the media. Wrestling companies on TV were saying, yeah, yeah, we're just being a bunch of silly boys putting on a fun show. We're not a real sport because that's how they got out of 
athletic commissions having any say over what they were doing and how they did it. And again, we, we, we've gone over articles from the 1880s talking about how people who bet on wrestling are marks and fools because it's a crooked business from day one. So this guy, he hated pro wrestling. He clearly didn't do his, uh, his wrestling research and walked in here with this plan to just just bring down the, the, the organized sport of pro wrestling and this man in particular because they would never, ever, ever admit that what they did was fake. Yeah, not anyone that worked for the WWF, certainly. No, but it does, it does bring up an interesting point because what he really tried to do was he tried to leverage, you know, he basically put K, the, the adherence to kayfabe on trial. So then you hear, so it begs the question to me, what pops in my head is like, you go back to like sort of that old school ethos, the Cornette, Bill Watts kind of mentality of like, you always protect the business. You know, they always talk about how, you know, Watts would pay your bail or whatever. It, I wonder if this had happened in his jurisdiction, in his territory, if he would have uh, covered the financial expense of Davy Boy Smith actually protecting the business and advised him to do so and told him he was going to back him up, or if he would have, uh, you know, that would have been very interesting. That, that really would have been a rubber meets the road situation because, yeah, there were guys who were like, you know, there were promoters, most of the uh, Southern uh, promoters in the 70s and the 80s, and even sometimes in the 60s, who said, if you lose a bar fight, you're fired. Yep. If you lose a fight, you're fired. If uh, somebody challenges wrestling, you have to defend wrestling and we'll take care of the rest. But what happens when the rest is $1.3 million, not uh, you know a couple hundred bucks to bail the person out and then they skip two counties over for the next show and just don't bring that guy back to uh, you know Frog's Holler until the uh, statute of limitation expires. Yeah, that's, you know, it really does, you know, man, this this scumbag attorney, man, he just was in the wrong place, wrong time, because if he had been in, you know, 85 Mid-South, man, he might have cleaned up. He would shout things like, you are putting on a show for Calgary and the world, aren't you? Insinuating that the story Smith told was somehow also work since reasons. So he's trying to bait him into taking part in this drama that only existed in his head. He's one of those people that just kind of went into the courtroom expecting this big dramatic movie moment to unfold. His 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 dramatic yeah. third act to just, you know, bring the fucking house down. And he's just it's just turning into wet farts in the elevator. It's just turning into blocked at every turn. Every single thing is just like what are you dumb? No, wrestling's fake. What are you dumb? No, we can't do that. What are you dumb? Like, like every, every, every at every place he's countered, and he's just trying to escalate it by just being an asshole. He's trying to now bait Davy Smith into a shouting match, and Smith's like, "Dude, why are you like? Why are you yelling at me? Like, we're we're we're, <laughs> we're in court." It got to the point where Justice John Waite cut him off, reminding him that and the jury that. Uh, Smith was under oath, not cutting a promo on Raw, and therefore his <laughs> word needs to be taken at face value. That's amazing. And first of all, Justice John was super over back in the back in the Calgary territory. But uh, yeah, I mean, what? So this guy just had in his head. He's like, he's thinking he's gonna have this like few good men moment. You can't handle the truth. Yeah, or we pile drive each other every day. The business is all phony. Like, did he think he was just going to crack the, you know, the Da Vinci Code of Yeah, or it would be like the, the, the lawyer in that, what was that, uh, like, early, or that, like, 90s Ed Norton movie where he played the altar boy on for murder, where he had, pers you know, multiple personalities, and the lawyer yells at him until he breaks personality. Totally. Once again, this guy just clearly had been, you know, watching too many movies, been reading too many books, too much TV. He thought this was a movie, not a 
you know, I, he, he just kind of came at it from a very weird place. And in a way, he was more pro wrestling than the pro wrestler totally. was. Smith, under oath, explained and broke down how most wrestling moves require both men to cooperate to make them look good, especially something like a pile driver, which is damn near impossible to do without the other guy making it happen. A few stampede wrestlers also backed up this statement. Well, any older brother of all time forever that has tried to do this maneuver on a younger sibling that didn't want it done can tell you how hard it is to pull off. Oh, yeah. No, any any kid who grew up with wrestling and then like like me and my friends in the you know fourth grade or whatever, it's then time to take it to the backyard and beat the dog shit out of each other. And you find out real quick that, uh, you know, some things just uh, just aren't uh, real. Uh, you like, yeah, it's like, Hey, we can clothesline each other and drop each other and kick and punch and do this. But if we try doing this, I have no idea how to get you off the fucking ground because that person has to jump and post. Otherwise this acrobatic uh, routine simply does not happen. Yeah, totally. I remember my first, my first day at wrestling when I was little, I was 11 years old at this AAU camp and I asked them when we get to learn suplexes. And he kind of looked at me, and he's like, I think he kind of got that I was a pro wrestling fan. And so he's like, okay, you want to learn how to do a suplex on somebody? And so I was like, yeah. And I ran over, and I, like, hooked their head like you would do a standard, like, vertical <laughs> suplex in pro wrestling. And just, it's, yeah, you can't do that shit. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty comical when you actually try to apply high-angle high throws and takedowns that you see that are pretty commonplace in pro wrestling. There ain't none of you. There's never been done in the history of pro fighting because you can't do that shit to somebody that doesn't want you to. And that's why pro wrestling in places where it stayed closer to its combat roots, like Japan, for example, pro wrestling looks very different in many ways because those guys would be pro wrestling on Friday and fighting in an MMA organization on Saturday, which is fucking nuts, but it's how they lived their lives. So that original kind of catch wrestling style never mutated to full blown show business because it didn't need to. It was about believability over there as opposed to being television entertainment like it was in uh, England at the time and in America at the time. So a lot of these moves didn't need to have that like really weird kind of like, you know, like amateur style, which isn't a lot of fun to watch. It was put together so every single spot is fun, is a cheer moment, is a boo moment. And when you're making it that way, it's a lot of fun. It's like if somebody were watching a uh, suing an actress who played Chun Li in Street Fighter at some point, and they're gonna say they, they they she beat up a dude by doing that like tornado kick and you know floating through the air sixteen <laughs> times. It's like sorry, buddy, without the wires, that shit just ain't happening. Yeah. Besides, like I'm still trying to figure out how like the you know the forensics of what he's trying to describe. So so did he just like no sell his own finish and give this guy a pile driver and then pick him up and like walk him out to the clearly David boy Smith knows to let it, let him, let it breathe. Once you've hit a big maneuver like that, he's not just going to pick him up and, and not let the pop milk from the people. I know it's kind of like, it makes me think of the, uh, the big fight scene and they live where uh, the, it's, it's totally. like, you know, it's like David and uh, Roddy Piper just having a pro wrestling street fight for like seven to 10 minutes. And there was like a big, like vertical backdrop in it. Yeah. And it's just shit like, that where it's like that's the greatest the greatest cinematic combat sequence ever done on film <laughs> but yeah, it shows the preposterous of it but that was actually about as 
maybe real as you could actually work a pro wrestling type of suplex into a real fight. Oh, absolutely. But it was, uh, yeah, that, that wasn't on trial here in 1996. Speaking of Stampede Wrestling, longtime ring announcer Ed Whalen refused to write a character reference for Davey since he had plans to run for office and didn't want to be associated with this at all, which ended his long friendship and relationship with the Hart family and the Hart organization. On the other hand was Carl Moffat, a Calgary wrestler with a serious grudge against Davey and the Hearts after a car accident seven years previous. On July 4th, 1989, a car full of wrestlers, including Ross Hart, Suma Hart, Moffat, Smith, and Chris Benoit got into a crash, and Moffat badly broke his leg and was out of wrestling for a year, and truthfully never fully became the same wrestler he was. He tried to sue the driver, Ross Hart, but needed backup, and Smith obviously turned him down when asked to testify on his behalf. Well, now is Moffat's chance for revenge, to, to declare that all wrestling is real under oath, to sink the British Bulldog in court. Ross Hart had to be brought in to testify to the origins and motivations of Moffat's grudge to nullify the previous testimony. So we had a guy who was going to come in off of some weird grudge from years ago to try to claim that wrestling is real, to try to help put this guy in jail and deprive him of all of his money. And then they had to bring in another guy to say that, oh no, all of that's bullshit. So the layers of drama just keep stacking up. It's like pro wrestling. You wouldn't think that you really develop these storylines where it's like the origin story of a supervillain or some heel turn henchman where it's like, I'll get even with them. <laughs> He's going to lie under oath and try to convince the court that pro wrestling is real. That is, I mean, dude, that is just... The level of pettiness, first of all. Oh, absolutely. It is, it's, it's all just petty, weird dramas start to finish. And another witness for the prosecution was a member of the Calgary police, Sidney Sutherland, who claimed to have seen Smith lift a fellow officer up over his head, gripping the belt and collar, then threw him six feet across the street. Another case of the girlfriend who goes to another school so you'll never meet, meet her defense. Just saying, oh, I saw this happen to somebody else. Why aren't they here? Reasons. Yeah, wait, I thought a witness means you had to witness the thing that you were in court to give testimony about what you witnessed. There, I like how all their witnesses didn't see this shit at all. And only, like, all the witnesses that actually saw it were like, yeah, that's not what happened. But they're like, no, pro wrestling is real to me, damn it. And the final nail in the case's coffin, which is a case, so a case's case. Anyway. It's a casket. The case's casket. Dr. John Butt, the former chief medical investigator that the prosecution initially lined up, was back to testify for the defense. On the stand, he explained that the injuries could only happen from falling back onto his head and that a throw would have resulted in injuries to the top of the head, the side of the head, or the face, thus making it impossible for nearly any wrestling move to be involved. So on February 7th, 1996, Years of drama came to an end when Justice John Waite announced the verdict. Smith had acted appropriately, in self-defense, and was not responsible, thus acquitted of all charges. So now you know the tale of the Canadian Kill a Mockingbird story. This is, this is just ridiculous drama. I cannot imagine how much this actually cost Davy Boy Smith. And you wonder why these motherfuckers get driven to... to Relying on substances to cope with reality. This is maddening. 
I would have probably, you know, I hate to say it, I would like to think my, my calmer self would have prevailed, but I probably would have beat the fuck out of this guy at this point, dude. And the justice further stated that Light was the one who could properly be described as committing assault, and that the rights of a professional wrestler are no different than any other citizen, so suck it, Cody Light. Davy Boy Smith broke down emotionally in court. He knew he had done nothing wrong, but a lot was at stake with his trial, and it was a long, stressful road to get here. He did the thing where you talk before thinking and said, he thinks I make a lot of money, so he tried to sue me, before his lawyer tackled him and told him to shut the fuck up, because saying something like that to reporters makes you look heartless no matter how true it might be. Does it really? I'd be like, this motherfucker, this ambulance chasing motherfucker, and this banana peel slipping, can't dance with my wife, jabroni, 19-year-old, can't hold his liquor ass nerd, has the audacity to accuse me of a pile driver. Bitch, first of all, learn my move set. It's a fucking running power slam. Get it right, bro. <laughs> and Smith returned to follow up with, I feel really bad for what happened to Cody Light, but it wasn't my fault, and went on about fearing for his reputation with the children who idolize him on TV. Yes, won't someone please think of the children? Cody Light wasn't happy with being portrayed as an aggressive drunken idiot, and admitted that due to his brain injury, he didn't really remember anything from that night. Yeah, that you know, that's probably for the best, but yeah, you know, don't act an ass if you don't want to be portrayed as an ass. That's, that's the moral of the story as far as that goes. And as we mentioned a while ago, anything legal is expensive. The trial had cost Davy Boy half a million dollars, and he needed to renegotiate his contract with the WWF. Unlike many of his contemporaries, he had no intention of heading to WCW, but Vince McMahon was skeptical, having heard the same thing from Scott Hall and Kevin Nash right before they ran for the bright lights of TNT television. And Smith was a big part of any European show that WWF had put together, and Vince did not want to lose him. The European market was much stronger for WWF than it was for WCW, and the British Bulldog was the star they hanged the whole operation on. However, Smith felt that he was owed more money since he had co-headline pay-per-views over the last year and felt he should be compensated accordingly. He thought he should be headlining house shows instead of doing throwaway tag and multi-man matches, but mostly he hated, and I mean hated and rightfully so, what creative had in store for him at the time. They wanted his real-life wife, Diana, involved in his feud with Shawn Michaels. Diana was supposed to throw herself at the Heartbreak Kid and for him to reject her, so she would crawl back to Davy Boy and claim that he came on to her and she shot him down. It's disgusting, no matter how hard Bruce Prichard and Jim Cornette tried to sell it to him. Yeah, I have never understood the obsession with just absolutely ruining the entire morality of the locker room in the mid 90s to make Shawn Michaels get the opportunity to be a fuckboy in kayfabe. It's, it's, who booked this shit? Why is it, what is this? Leave, leave the man's wife out of it. Absolutely, because it made him look like an asshole and her like a whore. As he said, it made no sense and was stupid. If it were real, how would I never find out? How would nobody ever tell me? Because apparently he hadn't heard of Chris Candido getting cucked by Shawn Michaels and, by, <laughs> and Sonny nonstop. Yes, I mean, any, I will never reject 
a booking angle on its premise, you know? You can look at what Flair and Macho did with the Miss Elizabeth thing, and it can be done in a good way when you're going to play that sort of, you know, jealous, you know, game and the, the relationship aspect and, you know, different... A- but, man, time and place, and also just the thing between the Hart family and Shawn Michaels and trying to capitalize on the authenticity of the heat, but only one direction... I hate I hate that, and it sucks that he got put in that position. And Stu Hart was so pissed over what they wanted his daughter to do that he threatened to come down and stretch whomever was responsible for the storyline, and I feel even in his older years, he could have done it. So Hart called Cornette and ranted about the situation, and unfortunately, Cornette assumed it was Owen Hart, who was notorious for his phone pranks pretending to be his father, and Cornette just played along and started running down Pritchard as the pervert and sole person responsible for the storyline, again, assuming it was Owen, not the actual Stu Hart on the line. It makes me think of that scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off when he's calling in uh, sick and Principal Rooney's just like saying all this awful shit about the grandmother's corpse and then Ferris Bueller's on the other line. Yeah, right? Totally. It's just, oh, you can imagine, and Stu Hart's just such a prickly fuck. He's probably getting so furious. Cornette thinks he's just playing with his boy Owen who's ribbon. And Owen was a notorious river, but that must have been hilarious. And Stu Hart did take the info from that call, as weird as it was, and took it to Vince, and the whole story was dropped immediately. However, the storyline would have long-term consequences when Smith informed WWF that WCW was offering him big money, giving them the chance to match it. He wanted to stay with WWF. He did not want to go back to WCW, but McMahon assumed that he wanted out due to the offensive storyline, while Smith just wanted to be paid what he thought his worth was, especially for the European market shows. He had a shit time in WCW before, knew he'd be lost in the shuffle despite Hulk Hogan brothering up and claiming he'd look after him. So he wanted to be with WWF. He just wanted a different financial compensation for what he was bringing to the table. And in the end, he stayed with WWF only to have to buy out his own contract a little while later and jump to WCW after the Montreal screw job. Yeah, man. I mean, that is so mind-blowing to me the level of offense and repeated offense that went towards that whole camp from what they did with Brett, what they did with Owen, what they did with Davey, what they did with Pillman, all, you know, that whole side of the family, the the constant picking at the Hart family with storylines, even the old Jerry Lawler stuff where they would take all kinds of shots at the Hart family. I never understood that. And then especially when it comes to Davey, because Davey seemed like the one that could actually cross the political aisle and work with Shawn Michaels and, and Buddy even, you know, hang out and be relatively friendly with that with that other side of the locker room. To They had such tremendous chemistry together. I don't understand why they felt the need to drive that whole side away, even the guys on that side that they could work well with. And we can connect the dots in many ways as to whether the cost of the trial and the stress of the trial and needing to recoup those funds is really what brought him to WCW or whether he would have stayed in place. There's so many little variables, but the move to WCW ruined his life. Because on September 13th, 1998, he 
he was victim he was the victim of a bad bit of setup they were having the warrior formerly the ultimate warrior come back for the one of the worst booking ideas ever and he would come out of a trap door in the middle of the ring well they didn't have it closed properly so davy took an awful bump on it severely injured his back it turned into a spinal infection he nearly died he was hospitalized for six months he received his release via fedex from wcw and was left unemployed injured and soon addicted to painkillers in order to get back to the earning the money the only way that he knew how so by going to wcw to try to get a fresh start on things he received the injury that more or less killed him because he was physically done so he had to rely on painkillers and steroids to really be able to even do even be a shadow of who he was previously and at the end of the road that brought him back to wwf a couple other spots but he was not the same man for many reasons and on may 18th 2002 he died of a heart attack at the age of 39 all because of the stress from that injury, from that trial, from all these factors. And it just makes you wonder what his life would have been like if none of that had happened. Yeah, it's really tragic because, you know, for one, I mean, we, we could probably be talking about the most dominant father-son tag team combination going in the world today if he was still around. I mean, he would still be young enough to be able to get out there and work, especially in a tag team setting. Um, and obviously his, his son is tremendous. And he, he, was, he had the chance to tag with him, from what I understand, a few times in the end of his run before he passed when they were bringing him along and they thought that that would help him stay healthy. But yeah, you can see the domino effect that started with this, this incident. And it's really tragic how many members of that family sort of that the initial piece that either directly resulted in their death or caused the the domino effect that resulted in their death happened in the ring from shitty gimmick booking man it's 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 terrible and this is a man who really was in the top mix for wwf as it was going into the hottest era possible but how do you handle that when you're going home for a trial that can put you in jail and cost you more money than you have in your bank account? How do you focus on your career? How do you focus on your family? Because you know the, the wife that was insulted, they ended up splitting up. He ended up you know, having other girlfriends. He ended up you know, having a much worse drug problem than he did when he was just having a fun recreational time. He was doing more steroids because of the injury than he was when he was just maintaining his body. I do not want to paint him as somebody who just fell into drugs at the end of the road, but there's a difference between recreational drug use and the shit that kills you at the end because you're just trying to maintain. And that's really what happened to him. And a lot of that can just be tracked back to the psychological effects of that trial. And also what you have to do to numb your body to be able to perform and travel and keep the rigorous schedule that the business demands. You know, the problem is you get hurt especially back then they were on the road so much you get hurt there is no time to be on the injured list there's no off season you just work through it and you, you work around it and you play hurt and you keep having matches and it never truly heals and then you overcompensate and then something else gets tweaked and eventually you can't function we see it with so many of these guys from that era where they can't function without painkillers and a combination of you know they need 
the steroids and those other things to help with the recovery just so they're not in pain constantly. Then you need the, the, the drug use and the alcohol use to numb the pain because you're in pain constantly. And it just, it creates a spiral of bad mental health. And as soon as something comes along that, that can crack the veneer like this case, everything crumbles. I'm just glad we got to tell a, a cheerful story this time. Oh yeah, man, this is exactly what we needed today, yes. Big, big smiles on our faces. It is a tragic story, and it's a story that did not need to happen. It's a story that he was actively trying to avoid being a part of, but he got sucked into it. It's kind of a weird side pocket, uh, weird little little side quest side story that people don't hear a lot because it didn't happen in the ring. It didn't happen as part of the company. It was his private life. And in many ways, it kind of ruined his life. It was that domino that kind of started the uh, the downward spiral. I'm mixing my metaphors, but what can you do? But I hope that, I don't know if we learned anything from this, because uh, unfortunately there are jerks out there that are always gonna start a fight with the toughest guy and then cry when uh, something goes goes badly with that plan. It's part of the human condition, it's part of the power dynamic in society, but it did become a fascinating story and I'm glad we all got to go down this path. Um, hopefully fairly soon we'll talk about the opposite side of things when you have the person who mouths off a lot and starts trouble but uh, can't really back it up, but that's possibly next time. So thanks for being here with us. Uh, please, you know, if you're, if you haven't subscribed on your whatever app you use, please subscribe. If you can leave reviews, please do. If you have ideas for stories you'd like to hear, please send them to us. We'll uh, we'll look into it. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. We'll always have fun old photos and videos there. But for now, it's time to call it a night. Time to head back to the book depository of wrestling knowledge that I call home. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Good night, everybody. A Lincolnshire hug to you all. Cut Prince Martini. <laughs>